Okay, let's uh, begin. I've started off every night so far with a question, so I might as well start off tonight with a question. Um, but I'm going to leave it suspended and hanging for a little while and then circle around and hopefully get back to it at some point. And this is the question, who do you think you really are? <laughs> Sounds a bit confrontational, doesn't it? <laughs> but I'll circle around and I'll come back to that. Okay, I want to leave you hanging and I want you kind of to think about it, perhaps even as I'm talking. But I want to talk particularly about picking up some of the themes we've spoken about on the other nights and exploring them just a little further um, because they're related to this question about who do we think we really are. One of the things that we've seen is that uh, we are a lot of the time in states of craving, <clears throat> states of being pulled into looking for sensual desire, looking for get-outs, looking for big comfort zones in our life. And the biggest comfort zone that we generally have is called habit. That's the big one. Um, using Christian terminology, even if people consider themselves to be Buddhist, they're com constantly in the habit of falling. <laughs> and here they are just falling into habit patterns. Um, this is one of the biggest problems that we find in our lives. One of the biggest problems, actually, that you can experience on a retreat such as this is that you start to lose some of those comfort zones. Uh, you start to lose some of those props um, that normally support you in your escape mechanisms. Um, because one of the things when life gets difficult, when life gets tough, run into a habit. <laughs> run into some comfort zone that we've created for ourselves. Um, often those are physical habits, often the habits of daydreaming and, and mental proliferation, as it's often called in Buddhist thought. Um, but this is something we do again and again and again when we're challenged, is to want to run away. Often we run away into idealistic thoughts, well, things are better if only I had, if only I was with, if only I did. Yeah, and we can put X and Y and Z in, in the places, and I'm sure you can all think of your X, Ys and Zs that fit into the gaps. If only I had, I would be happy. If only I was with, I would be happy. If only I did X, I would be happy. You know, all of these things are very, very much a big part <clears throat> of one of the major problems that the Buddha diagnoses. In his day, and the word really does translate as self, um, it is that self, which is that fixated ego, um, that ego which dominates everything, that wants things and wants to manipulate the world for its own ends. And it doesn't like not getting what it wants. One of the big things, again, about coming on retreat is you will find a big, fat, restless, kicking ego. <laughs> <laughs> underlying a lot of your experience and says things like I want to do something else <laughs> I want to be somewhere else I don't like this, this is uncomfortable you know, and things like I'm joking about it but it's very serious and I think virtually everybody who ever comes away on retreat experiences this to some degree or another and often what happens is people are wanting to flee back into their normal habit patterns, back into that. The whole point about something like a retreat is exactly that. You come to diminish some of the things that you normally do in life. Um, and actually it requires something which is a very unpalatable word. And I want to speak about this in general and then move on to this topic of who do we think we really are, because it's really related to it very strongly. Is when we move into a situation like a retreat, it requires a degree of renunciation. That is the unpalatable word. It means to give up something. Now, what it often means, obviously practically what it means in this situation, is that you have to give up all of the normal props that you usually have. The radio, the television, the wire, the, the, you know, the, the media in general, um, all of the friends, all of the recreational drugs and things and legalized things that we have. All of those go for this. And what are you left with? That thing you're really trying to escape is called you. <laughs> and the 
these are all ways, actually, most of the strategies that we have through our normal daily lives are ways of escaping you. Yeah, so we're trying to get away from ourselves much of the time. We're trying to obliterate ourselves and lose ourselves and we find ourselves, when challenged, falling back again and again and again and again. Now, again, this is nothing something to beat ourselves up with, but it's something to become aware of, what we're doing, to bring into our minds, to become mindful when that is happening, when we confront, when we're confronted with discomfort, not to run fleeing immediately from it, but perhaps to look at it a little bit and see what's going on, to see what is actually being so upset in that whole process. Now, this takes a degree of courage. I yeah, don't hesitate to use that word. It takes a degree of courage and it takes a degree of effort to be able to look at those discomfort zones and to see perhaps what is happening in this extreme discomfort that we can all feel when placed in situations where we don't feel quite feel at home. And actually, I would say that's not just in places like this where you don't feel at home. A lot of the time we don't feel at home in the world. Full stop. We don't feel a home in you know, being in our everyday lives. Hence the reason for, again, fleeing into, into very, very big habit patterns that we have. So renunciation actually is not just about, you know, it's not about becoming a monk or a nun or anything like ridiculous like that, you know, collect your begging bowl at the door as you go out. You know, it's not of that form. It's not you know, going to the opposite extreme. It's seeing where our habit patterns lie and what it is necessary to drop in order to live a much more fulfilled and contented life. The paraphernalia and claptrap that we carry around with us most of the time is like this enormous bag that we're just hauling around with ourselves. Most of it is completely unnecessary, but we think we need it a lot of the time. So when we're put into a situation like a retreat, there is going to be difficulty. There is no doubt about it. That great big fat restless ego is going to be kicking and screaming because it does not like what's going on. It doesn't like sitting still. It's going, amuse me. <laughs> Distract me. Um, all sorts of other things. I'm joking about this to try and make a point, but it's trying to get your attention. Um, it's like a screaming child. You know, it wants constant, constant attention. And oh, trouble that, I always have this image. I don't this scene, The Little Shop of Horrors, a film, where it has this giant plant that keeps opening its mouth and going, feed me. <laughs> and I, I tend to think of the ego as being a bit like that. It's constantly saying, feed me, <laughs> in whatever way possible. You know, feed um, in terms of ego gratification. And I'm not actually departing much here actually from traditional Buddhist texts because there is such something called nutriment that keeps feeding the stuff. It's called ahara in, pa in Pali, which means the way that we feed our habits continuously. Our habits of clinging and attachment and craving. Um, and the ways, in fact, that we perpetuate for ourselves in those clinging and in those attachments are misery. And one of the big clinging and attachments, I hope picking up the themes from last night, that we have sometimes is our suffering. Yeah. They talk in Buddhist texts, actually, of renouncing samsara. Yeah, you've really got to want to renounce that. What that actually means is you've got to want to renounce the world of habit to gain that freedom that I talked about on the first evening. Yeah, you've got to want, because where there is habit unexamined, there is no freedom. There is only reactive patterns. That is all. So in other words, there is stimulus and there is response. There is stimulus and there is response. That is all. If the stimulus is nice, I want it. I'm salivating for it. If the stimulus is unpleasant, I'm running away from it. And again, I'm picking up on things I said last night in slightly different ways. 
Um, because that is the mechanism under which most of us, most of the feeling tone of our lives is governed. Like and dislike. I gravitate towards that which I like. I run away as fast as I can from that which I dislike. Where is the freedom in that? Think about it, just for a second. There is very little freedom in that movement. It means, and probably the people around you know this, because if they know you really well, they can really wind you up very easily, because they know how to get a reaction out of you. Very, very easily, those people that know you well. Yeah. In other words, it's like that stimulus and response mechanism is working and operative um, for the most part in a lot of our daily activities. I wouldn't say totally, because that's to paint too pessimistic a picture. Uh, in other words, there wouldn't be any solution to the problem if that was the case. Um, but the fact that we can apply mindfulness, we can apply awareness to looking at some of the stimulus and response mechanism, means if we really, really examine it and sometimes work really hard, I'm not underestimating at all the effort this requires, if we work really hard, sometimes we can find ourselves in the mode of giving up, letting go of things. Sometimes if you create the ground, the necessary ground, things will give you up. Yeah. It's not even a case of having to volitionally give something up. You just no longer want to do it at all. You've replaced it with something far more wholesome, something which is really quite valuable. And so again, this all becomes a question. I don't want to kind of push this across, across onto you as a sort of great piece of dogma, but I want you to think about it because it's really, really important in terms of your own life to think these things through and examine them in terms of our freedoms and unfreedoms and our ordinary daily activities, our attachments, our clingings to habit patterns and structures and mechanisms by which we protect and feed the ego. Yeah. The ego's main mechanism, the main job, I would say, of the ego is to demand and cling, mostly. It's extremely destructive. Whether it is huge egos involved in relationship, there is no relationship, basically. Now, all of the things that we have been doing so far, even in the few days we've been together, are all about genuine relation either genuine relations with ourselves or genuine relations with others. They all actually have as the basis of their virtue, of their, you know, of their virtuousness, a degree of selflessness in it. An emptying out of the self. A letting go, a diminishment to a degree. In traditional Buddhist cultures, one of the most highly valued virtues for everybody within a Buddhist society is generosity. And that doesn't just mean material things. It's often expressed in material things. But it means generosity as a way of being in the world. Just like I've indicated to you that metta, this loving kindness, this kindness and compassion, and all of the other virtues of Buddhism are ways to be in the world. And they're all engaged in helping to diminish the self, or perhaps in Western terminology, because there's no actually direct word for it in, in, uh, in Asian languages, Pali or Sanskrit, ego. That's really the way it is. This kind of solid center that we feel we operate from most of the time, that actually says, me. <laughs> That's what it's saying, me, constantly. Yeah. However, if you think about it, if you think about, if you think about, it only works in English, and it doesn't work in many other languages, actually, unfortunately. It works in English, the I. When I really attach myself to that notion of the I, just think how terribly lonely you are. It's all solitary and stick-like, isn't it? When you write it down, you know, you know I. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's a really big problem. We can feel terribly, terribly lonely in this world as egos, because we've got nobody like us. It's not a shock, you know, we walk out in the world and nobody's exactly like me. <laughs> and actually, a lot of the time, this ego demands the other to be like you. Even in relationship, there is no real relationship because there is a demand made on the other to be either something for the, the solitary individual ego that wants and demands 
or it wants the other to be exactly like them. And I'm sure we've all been there at times. Opinions, you know, you want the, you know, your partner to reflect your opinions, to like your taste in music, to do all the things that they do. And isn't it upsetting when they don't? <laughs> you know, when they're not exactly like us. You know? And I think this is, um, again, I'm putting it in slightly humorous form to try and make a point that, of course, this is extremely destructive. This is extremely destructive to any real form of relationship of being with others. However, when we start talking about relationships, and perhaps if we have time tonight, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but um, perhaps if not, another evening. But it comes back to the basic way that the ego demands its comfort zones. To have somebody different from me is uncomfortable. Yeah, that could be sexually different, racially different, um, just difference in opinions, politically different, all those differences which are out there to threaten you because they're not like you, yeah. can be extremely worrying. So we can end up feeling extremely isolated and alienated in this world. And putting it across in a very extreme form, again to make a point. Yeah. Often the differences are not quite that exaggerated, but in some cases they are, and they lead to horrors, if you think about it. You know, the history of the 20th century is one of the most bloody in the history of the world. Um, and the amount of racial genocide that went on in that century is probably greater than in any other century hitherto. You know, and a lot of that is founded on the fear of difference, of somebody being different from me. Much of what's going on in the current world is also fear of difference, people being different from us as well. However, that's founded on, again, always having to find that comfort zone of familiarity and safety. Yeah. Now, one of the things that the, uh, the Buddha Dhamma really is not about safety. <laughs> it really isn't. It really is stepping out into uncertainty into an unknown sphere. However, as a replacement for all those certainties and all of those ego demands that are there, looking for those, you know, what I've talked about as structures of compensation and comfort zones and all the rest of it, what we step out into is something I think we've probably most of us forgotten since we were children, which is a sense of wonder about things. Yeah. Rather than see something or an other person, let's just take that for an instance since I was on talking about relations, rather than seeing the other as frightening, see them as something wonderful. <laughs> you know, rather than as challenging, to see them as something wondrous. That their very being is wondrous, just like your very being is wondrous as well. Now that doesn't require certainties. It requires openness. And where there is an ego, there is no openness. There is only closure. There is only, as, and I've used this metaphor already in a slightly different context, there is only a post nailed into the ground with a dog running around it. <laughs> and that is you know, what the ego is. It's that post nailed into the ground, and in fact the whole world has to circulate around my ego yeah, for me to feel comfortable. Yeah. Take the dog off the leash, you probably wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. In most cases, that's pretty true of ourselves. Take away our structures, take away our comfort zones, take away our familiarities, and most of us feel lost. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you, after three days, and I always think the first three days of a retreat are the most difficult anyway, aren't feeling a little bit under strain here for the first three days. Yeah. You've had an awful lot stripped away from you in the first three days. You've done a lot of sitting. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a lot of quiet, which is something we're not used to either. Yeah. Because, again, some of one of the uncomfortable zones that we often have is, how can you be with an other in silence? <laughs> now we have all these words, don't we, you know, for sort of fearful silence, a pregnant silence. Uh, you know, really different forms of silences. There's a wonderful short story by somebody called Heinrich Böll, 
about a man who worked in a recording studio recording interviews with people and won the Hundred Brothers and Nobel Prize winner um, in literature. And he wrote the short story, as I say, about this man in the recording studio. But instead of um, splicing together the interviews, he spliced together all the silences out of the interviews, because every one of the silences was different. <laughs> so one of the things I think a lot of us find about silence and you know, it might be a shock to you. Some of you might have come here, particularly as newcomers here, and not expected utter silence here. Is it? It can be frightening. What do you do? You know, when there's that other person sitting across the table? You know, our egos are normally demanding that we talk, fill up the space in some way. It's uncomfortable. Again, it's watching that discomfort. Yes. So it is actually, the silence does a number of things, actually. It does, it allows us to examine what is going on without having to verbalise everything. Yeah. And in fact, most of the verbalisation, actually, a lot of, well, I wouldn't say most of the time, a lot of the time, verbalisation is kind of red herrings. It's not really truthful. Uh, the psychologist Jacques Lacan once said, we never mean a word we say. <laughs> I think he's putting it a bit extreme, but... But it's making the point, actually, that somehow a lot of what we say never really connects with what is actually there at all. The verbiage covers up more than it reveals a lot of the time. Even our verbiage to ourselves, sometimes. But bear in mind, a lot of that desire to chatter is the desire of the ego to chatter, to fill up uncomfortable space. So there's one of your renunciations. You've let go of speech for 10 days, and it can be a frightening experience. So let go of it for 10 days. Yeah. So you have all those, as I say, props, like the, the media and all those com comfortable things that you do taken away from you just for that brief period of time. However, it's training. <laughs> it's training in the sense of being able then to hone in and look at what is important and what is actually going on. And of course what's going on is going to be uncomfortable. Because I say, that ego does not like it. It does not like it one little bit. It will kick, it will scream, it will shout, it will holler until you are deaf sometimes to get its own way. Sometimes that ego in Buddhism is personified. It gets personified as Mara, which is, actually means death in Sanskrit and Pali. Uh, it's kind of the, if you like, the little demon who's sitting on your shoulder, whispering in your ear. You know, I kind of had this a little bit with the, um, when I was talking about the hindrances yesterday the other morning, in saying, of course, that one of the things that comes up with doubt, of course, Mara is the great doubter as well, the great sceptical doubter, the one that sits on your shoulder during meditation going, it's not really working. No. Waste of time. <laughs> Might as well be at home. Plenty of other interesting things to do. <laughs> oh, I could think of something really gorgeous I could be doing at the moment. Yeah, so on and so forth. You know, that's what's going on. This is the voice of the ego. In a sense, chattering away to con continuously. You know, wanting its comforts back again. And its demands back again. Now that's the, the less technical description <laughs> of what I think is happening. Um, however, the unfortunate thing is we identify constantly with that voice. Whatever that voice says to us, if it's a desire, for example, and I'm sure most of us must have experienced this at some time, it's a desire, I must have it. Sometimes we don't even think of, well, I must have it. We just find ourselves in the act of buying or reaching out for the next chocolate biscuit or whatever it is that we want, there is no real thought. It's just automatic. It's grasping after what we want here. So, in that grasping, there is the establishment of ego. There's that constant ego gratification. Something we've spoken about, actually Tibetan views this a lot, it's quite sort of a technical way of doing it, is talk about ego grasping. Yeah. Self-interest, self-grasping. It's all about kind of solidifying 
making us much, much more the centre of the world. And I could go back to the first night and say, is that the way you want to live? Is it the way you want to live? And one can answer this. I mean, I really am throwing this up as a question to help you to think about it, because if that is the way you want to live, fine. But it's not the way that this path of meditation, this path of the Buddha Dharma is really about. It's about being able to see some of that and perhaps say, no, I don't want to live like that. It's not not requiring us to let go of everything at once, but at least to be engaged in process and investigation to find where our entanglements are, to find out where those cravings for comfort zones, for pleasures, for sensual desires, our clinging to ill will and resentment and dislike and all the things that we do, where they lie not to make us feel bad people. I keep having to reiterate that, because this is not to make you feel bad people. It's just what is going on. And the question is, if you're asking yourself that question genuinely, do I want to live like this? And it actually might lead to the answer, well, no, I'm not very happy in some of those areas. In fact, I can see that a lot of that is just perpetuating my misery in daily life, perpetuating this unpleasantness around me, because remember, you know, if you feel unhappy and miserable, you like to spread it around. <laughs> you know, you spread it to other people. And again, joking aside, that, that really does have an effect on others around us, on friends, on family, and everybody. If we see that, if we begin to see those mechanisms, you might want to do something about it. That's why I say it's useful to ask the question. And that's why it's useful to ask that question, how do I want to live? Do I want to live in through to the conditionings, the ego habits, the comfort zones, and so on and so forth. I won't go into, into them all again, but if we ask ourselves that question and we come up with the question, no, then it becomes now, how are we going to understand what's going on and what are we going to do about it? Yeah. The Buddha says, really, there's only one thing to do about it, and that's bring mindfulness and awareness and try to behave ethically. It's actually two things, but okay, so I'll speak about them as well, because actually one grows out of the other, really, in many ways. Now, mindfulness, of course, and the development of mindfulness as a way of insight into what is actually going on, not just mindfulness of breathing here, but I'm talking about a real, deep, insightful awareness. Mindfulness of breathing or just concentrating on an object and becoming aware of it is not going to change you. It might make you calmer. That's a nice spin-off. It won't change you. It won't change, it won't transform the world you live in. It will make some things different for you. It will bring a quieter degree. But mindfulness, in the sense, as an investigative tool, is that which transforms and changes. Now, it's based on that awareness, it's based on that tool of developing calmness and a a kind of a precision in the way that we can learn to concentrate and see, but that on its own is not going to bring about transformation. Transformation comes about by that applied investigation into our lives and an attempt to apply ethics and morals in our lives as ways of being. And I will definitely talk about that as we go through. To come back to the original question, who do you think you really are? Well, the Buddha speaks very specifically, and I said I've given you a more kind of looser construction about it. The problems resulting from if we think we are this ego and our identification with this ego, the kinds of problems that can erupt out of that and hopefully there'll be some questions, um, I just hope, about that whole mechanism. But the Buddha speaks very specifically that instead of this one solid, lonely entity, which we believe to be us, um, which somehow we feel immutable. I don't know if you forget that. You feel this kind of courty, sometimes unchanging. In fact, in the Buddhist society, and um, that's exactly the way they spoke. They spoke about an immutable, unchanging core entity to everything. Yeah. 
that was within his own society. They called it Atman, which actually translates roughly as self. It has about 14 meanings in Sanskrit, but never mind that. One of them is self here. And it was spoken about as that immutable self was completely indestructible. It was something which was neither born nor died, according to some of the you know, Hindu scriptures that were around at the period. Actually, weren't so much Hindu as what's called Brahman, which was the major religious tradition at the time. The Buddha completely disagreed with the idea that there was anything immutable to any of us. Remember I finished off last night by saying, isn't it strange we talk about everything changing, but not me? Now, the Buddha really followed through the logic of that in trying to get us to see that we're not an unchanging, fixed entity. In fact, when we're grasping and attempting to grasp after ourselves, what, in fact, are we grasping after? <clears throat> now, this, wasn't, this isn't an insight I might add that's confined to the Buddha. Yeah, there's been instances in Western philosophy where people have talked about this idea that there is an immutable, unchanging essence or self within you. Um, but I want to just refer to uh, a writer of fiction, Catherine Mansfield. I don't know if anybody knows any of her fiction. Catherine Mansfield, a great short story writer, New Zealander. Um, she wrote once in a letter to Virginia Woolf when she was commenting on um, a Shakespearean quote, which was, Be true to thyself. Um, and she said, be true to thyself. I can't quite understand what being true to myself means. Because when I examine myself, I feel I'm a concierge in a hotel with a hundred people in it. <laughs> you know, and that's the feeling that you get when you actually look. You know, which self do you want to be today? <laughs> you, know, you wake up in the morning, am I going to be this particular self or am I going to be that particular self? You know, I'm going to be the grumpy self today or am I going to be the cheerful self today? You know, um, one of the things that we always do is wake up in a mood. <laughs> and we can never escape that. And that moodedness, in a sense, is part of our manifestation of selfness for that day. However, what the Buddhist strategy was, to, was aimed at was breaking down this sense of a self. Breaking it down. Making it aware that we're just like the rest of the world and all of the things that we see around us that are actually process and change, we too are not a fixed thing. That is really good news. I don't know if you've taken on board. That is absolutely good news because when you're fixed, in whatever mood it is, some in, you know, seemingly immutable depression or immutable state of mind that you have which you think is all-encompassing and monolithic, the Buddha is actually saying to you, no, it isn't. It will change. It will arise and pass away. If you really understand the fundamentals of what's going on, it will change uh, because there is nothing there to be fixed in many ways. And a lot of the strategies in some areas of meditation practices are to look at that change, to look really, really deeply into it. There's something um, which I know very well, many of you have heard of before, there's something called Satipatthana, which is actually usually translated as four foundations of mindfulness, and they get progressively subtler and subtler. We're starting off with body. You know, looking, looking at the body, Looking at what's going on in it. You know, mindfulness of breathing is part of the body. You know, so you become not just aware that there is breath, but how does breath occur? You know, what happens in the breathing process? This is what's going on. And be aware that it's not of one type. There's lots of different things going on within it. The body itself, of course, is a huge process composed of many, many different parts. You know, ancient India had quite a different understanding in many ways, but they sat a lot in charnel grounds looking at bodies, so they had a pretty good idea what was you know, human beings were composed of. So there's this kind of mindfulness of body which takes into account the processes of the body. There's the mindfulness of feeling. Well, that's something that's going on continuously. All of our mental, uh, all the mental aspects, all of our physical aspects are all there being labelled under pleasant, unpleasant or neutral or actually indifferent, rather than neutral. 
pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. Mental, pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. Physical, unpleasant, pleasant and neutral. In each case. Covers the whole range of your experience. And of course, depending on pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, depends on how you're going to react. You know, if it's pleasant, you want more of it. If it's unpleasant, you want less of it. If it's neutral, well, a lot of time you don't even notice it. <laughs> you know, in these cases. So there's a lot of process going on and they're changing continuously. Then there is the mindfulness of the mind, of chitta, of this heart mind. What's going on in that? You know, look at all the changes. You know, I'm kind of really giving a quick gloss here. And then there is what composes, which is the contents in a sense. There's a technical word for it, but I won't give it to you. But what composes the contents of that mental phenomena that you see as your mind? Because that is composed out of elements. And in none of it, the Buddha says, can you find a self? What's going on? Yeah. Nothing that is fixed. We are all of that process. He reiterates one thing throughout a tremendous range of the Pali scriptures. He says, this is really good to apply to your experience when looking at it. When something really powerful arises, it's not I, it's not me, and it's not mine. It's a wonderful antidote to the attachment to whatever is arising. That it's not I, it's not me, and it's not mine. Coming back to his more technical description, he's saying that in fact what we think of as being unitary is actually composed to make any sensible talk about what a human being is or what we think ourselves is actually generally means speaking about five different factors. One is physical form, one is feeling, which we've already touched on. Another is perception discrimination. You know, I'll go into these in a second. Another is all of our habit formations, both good and bad, which are known as sankharas. You know, volitional formations, it kind of gets all sort of technical translations to this. And then finally, consciousness. You know, to be any sense of a meaningful self is actually to be composed out of something like those five factors. A physical form, lots of feelings, powers of discrimination and language and memory and all of these functions, a tremendous range of good and bad habits, often with bad habits predominating, <laughs> and then consciousness, which has as its object all of the, you know, all the other four things that are going on. And what he's saying is, is that none of them individually are self, in this unchanging phenomenon, because form changes. Unfortunately, I'm always too aware of it every time I look at the mirror in the morning. <laughs> the self is changing. Um, the feeling is constantly changed throughout a day. You know? um, I often joke about this and say, well, you know, the, your feelings about something, and this is not emotions so much as just simply the, the like or dislike of something, um, often changes much to the annoyance of those around you. You know, somebody you say, you know, I don't like that. Oh, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> it's, it's changing, um, and we can change really quickly. And if we look, for example, if you look at your life, imagine your life you know, as you've lived it over these years, you'll find that your feelings haven't remained the same. Things that you liked when you were young, perhaps like sweet, fizzy drinks, you know, something of that sort, you might not like now, and things you disliked as a child, you know, like things that are good for you, <laughs> as they loosely used to be called, uh, you might now like and feel really beneficial, and so on and so forth. And then there's the big one, which is technically known as sanya, which actually is usually translated as perception, if you look at any of the popular books on Buddhism, but really is more discrimination than anything else. It's the power of discrimination, the way that in some senses we discriminate a world. Just very briefly, the technical description of it in some of the psychological manuals is, is the ability to take an object and mark it for recognition. So in other words, it's about recognition of things. How do we do that for the most part? Memory and language. And they're both, of course, are very interrelated here. Memory and language is a really strong function in there. Language is the most part, you know, how I look at a word and because I know names I can see different types of trees rather than just a collective. Trees. You know, I see an elder tree or I see an ash tree or I see an oak tree and so on and so forth. And we're doing that continuously. What helps us to remember? Names. That's what we're doing. 
and what starts to go when people start to lose their memory they're known to things and memory is part of what we feel to be a self and this is part of this function is memory memory of course um, is actually partly responsible for why we feel we are the identical person who was age 5 experiencing this and age 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 experiencing this because it joins the continuum together it actually gives some sense of continuity so we think that there is something running the whole way through our experience which is unchanging However, with unfortunate illnesses such as dementias and that, memory starts to drop away. And so therefore, who you think you are starts to drop away as well. Memory is also extremely partial. You know, I again joke about this and make fun of it. You know, sometimes I can remember what I did 20 years ago and can't remember what I did last week. You know, um, because it's so partial. Because what I did 20 years ago really impinged on my memory and I really can really still... You know, remember it very strongly, you know, something I did last week because it perhaps tended to be mundane, run of the mill, gets forgotten, or at least pushed down, not into the, onto the level of kind of voluntary memory that I can recall with ease. So memory is part of that function of sanya. And then there is finally, and then there is of course these habits, I've kind of tried to indicate to you that the mind in a way is a soup. It's a soup of you know, all of these qualities, both good and bad. And out of those qualities develops habits, which actually has a name in Buddhist thought, really, which is karma, <laughs> which is a whole load of habits, which has been formed under volition or will. That's the main point about it. It's something called chitana. That all of these habits have been formed by will in some response. Again, we do them often in life situations, don't we? We form a habit, for example, as a protective mechanism to help us to carry through life in certain ways. But that habit was now useful, is now destructive. It causes us pain uh, in this moment of time. Uh, the poet Walker talks about a habit that moves in and doesn't leave. <laughs> and that's how often we're constructed. Habits that have moved in and not left. And in many ways, the whole of that cyclical behaviour that I was talking about, that circularity of behaviour that I was indicating the other night, that we call sansara, is just one vast bad habit. That is all it is. That's probably the best definition I know of sansara. It's one big bad habit. (laughs) But we keep going through it again and again and again. Yeah. And then finally, there is consciousness, and consciousness simply arises. It's not something on its own. Again, I don't want to go into the history of this, but this was a response to the Buddha's own time, that consciousness was believed to be somehow separate, pure, it didn't have an object. The Buddha spoke about it very much, is that consciousness only arises together with an object. So consciousness and world arise together. So every moment is a conscious moment, is our world. It's arising. And that consciousness is taking on, for example, the the taints, the colour, the flavour of whatever it's presented with. So if it's unwholesome, our consciousness is unwholesome. If it's wholesome, the consciousness arises as wholesome. And so on and so forth. That's a very, very quick run through that. Um, just to kind of give you a flavour, that there is no one thing that persists. So therefore, who do you think you really are? <laughs> yeah, coming back to that question, who do you really think you are? Because you know, normally we think we are this person. In fact, often, for example, we identify so strongly with habits that that's who we think we are. You know, and people go, don't they? You know, well, that's that's the way I am. <laughs> <laughs> in response to them. You know, as if it's an immutable, unchangeable thing, that that's the way I am. You know, I dislike peas, so therefore I'm going to, for the whole of my life, constantly dislike peas. <laughs> or whatever it might be, again, a really silly example. <clears throat> but it's really trying to get across to you the fact that if there is nothing immutable, unchangeable, then change is always possible. And actually, most of the things we identify with and think are ours are not I, not me, 
and not mine. I'll shut up. <laughs> okay, let's see if that's provoked anything. <laughs> if not, I'm going to get a big stick and start to poke you. <laughs> yeah. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to a process. And, yeah. So in other words, really what we're saying is there is not an immutable, unchanging I, but there is a process that we label as being self. And being a process, of course, it is continuously changing. It has characteristics which change. It has dimensions within it which change. Um, it's not saying there is nobody out there that I'm speaking to, but there is nobody there. This is actually why I didn't mention this in this talk, deliberately, partly. Um, but often we see this idea being conveyed in Buddhist thought as being no self. It's a terribly misleading idea. The Buddha did not teach no self. What he taught was that what we think is self is not self. However, there is a process that we label as being self. And actually, that thing, those things that I described to you, form, feelings, discriminations, habit patterns, and consciousness, are actually the processes that we label as self. They can actually be broken down even further than that. You know, into even finer and finer. So in consciousness, you get 121 different forms of consciousness, myriads of mental events which form the habit patterns, and you know, so on and so forth. And so you're breaking it down finer and finer into processes. You're not saying there's nobody there or nothing there. Not at all. That's not what the Buddha's saying. What he's trying to get us to see is why attach yourself to this seemingly um, illusory object of the self. Now, the thing is, I can talk about it. I can make it sound, yeah, hopefully, intellectually plausible. But the real thing is to see it in practice. To really see that what's going on inside you is impermanent and it's not self. So all of those thoughts that we attach great importance to are actually not self. The way I usually put this in relation to all those thoughts we take so seriously, you know, all those thoughts, every thought that passes through our head, we take so seriously. Actually, there's nothing personal. <laughs> there's nothing personal to it whatsoever. You know, other than we attach an I to it. You know, I am happy. I am sad. Really, it's, it's part of a trick of language, isn't it? as well, because we can form perfect grammatical sentences as most European languages, which has to have something like a pronoun into it, when you're talking about first-person experiences, uh, then we believe in it. I mean, the philosopher, I'm fond of quoting this, the philosopher Wittgenstein once said, he believed that the, the notion of the self was merely a grammatical error. <laughs> you know, in other words, it was because we had to form sentences in a particular way to make the grammar right, that we believe that there was such a thing as I am happy. What we're saying is happiness is going on. And the process of happiness is occurring. Now, obviously, I'm not going to go around, oh, the process of happiness is going on. <laughs> 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 no, it's much to say, I am happy. <laughs> but of course, we take it too seriously. We take that notion of the I really, really seriously. I'm joking about it in relation to that, but when I say I am depressed, I am feeling angry, it's as if you've got that marker and you have nailed that post into the ground there with it. So we're taking it all too seriously. Yeah. So I hope that was a response to your question. <laughs> Habitualized. Yeah, habitualized uh, as I have in my life. So, how does that um, correspond to. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a difference between habit and discipline. <laughs> there's a difference between habit and discipline. This, this is for a training purpose. This is for a training purpose. You know, the point is it's, it's structured and it's disciplined in a certain way because there are short periods of time 
that you can, in a sense, um, bring to bear on the sorts of practices that we're doing. To make the most of it, it has to be well structured, otherwise it would just drift, the whole thing. It has to be structured in a way to, to get the most out of it. In terms that it doesn't have to become a habit. Now, for example, if I went away into my ordinary life and said I'm going to sit, I don't know, six or eight times a day and do all this stuff, you'd see that you know, it'd start causing mayhem in your ordinary life. Um, and then perhaps it would start becoming habitualized. You know, for the purpose of training, it's fine. But it, it, the Buddha is even saying, you know, crisis situation happened here, perhaps this particular discipline would have to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm That's what I was saying, you know, obviously not in your case because you've been here a number of times and you know what goes on here, but for a lot of people who come into the situation, that loss of a lot of the things that you're talking about that aren't here can be quite frightening, you know, because you're used to your habitualized comforts and things like that and you come into a situation like this and it's not there. And, you know, I joked about it and said that you were left with yourself. You're left with only being able to do the practice and look at what's going on for yourself. Look at your own chattering mind. Look at your expectations. Look at this. Look at that. A lot of those things are not present in ordinary life because you are pulled out into, into, through peer pressure, for example, into various activities. Um, into, for example, one of the obsessions in the West is constantly, constantly, constantly being up to date with the news. Yeah, that's something that's going on that you don't have to do here, um, for example. You know, there's so many things, there's so many pressures in your life which are not here. If you're used to it, it can start to feel much more real. That you actually, those things outside, you see as things out, which are a lot of distractions. I'm not saying all ways, because I don't want to make a kind of monolithic picture here. But they can be seen as things continuously demanding and drawing our attention, and often many of these things actually creating this real strong sense of I and individuation. Now, you get a chance to examine that in your relationship to that in a place like this, through a discipline as well, and that's what I mean. Now, I'm, you know, coming whilst on the back of that question, I just want to make a comment, which is you can actually create a discipline in your own life where you can then start to see things which are important and unimportant. Because being in a situation like this, as, as it was for me, I mean, I slightly joked about it last night, and said, you know, being, being in that monastery for three and a half years, you suddenly start to, dis- you know, to discern what is good about Western culture. Yeah rather than constantly railing against, oh, everything's bad and everything's wonderful in the East. And, but it's not. You know, there's stuff about Tibetan culture and living in Tibetan society, which is absolutely horrible. You know, and stuff that's in Western culture, which is really good and really excellent. You know, so it's beginning to get perspective on things that normally we don't have a balanced perspective on. Yeah. And I think that's the benefit of doing things like retreats. You know, I think there's a lot of other benefits, but that's one of them. Comment on, on what you're saying about ego. Yeah. And I understand that you, know, you said that you're going to paint things in a very extreme way mm. in order to make a point. Yeah. And, and that's fair enough. But I suppose I understood what you said about ego as, as sort of, you know, demonizing somewhat when you said ego would be a demon, I'm not sure. <laughs> a demonizing of ego, mm. um, which really represents for me all the limitations of ego. And, and what can be the worst thing mm. to do. What 
I would also understand the development of ego as an achievement of human consciousness and as a very important mm. thing, which then runs into the limitations and which then needs to be transcended um, in our development, which is what I understand the practice uh, to be about in, in many ways. Um, can, I, can I just comment on that before we go any further? Because I think, I think you're partially right there. In terms of Buddhism, it's not so much getting an ego. It's actually relinquishing the notion of an ego, i.e. of a solid sense of self, to which all my experiences are attached and around which they all circulate, but getting a healthy sense of the self-process, a healthy sense of that. Um, without that healthy sense of the self-process, we can't function in the world. Now, whether the notion of an ego and a strong self had evolutionary function, probably did. Now, I have no doubt about that in many ways. But in Buddhism, the thought is to get, to, to, to do away with, you know, to, to relinquish that idea of there being something fixed within the continuum around which all experiences related to or circulates. Now, that doesn't mean being, not being a self. What it means is being a healthy self as a process. And perhaps I can speak about that more, perhaps tomorrow night. I mean, I might say a little bit more about that and fill in the flesh a little bit more on that notion. But it's extremely important because one of the worrying aspects I often have about the idea of no self that's often used, and I don't know where you've come across this, but often, as I say in, in um, some of the more popular books on Buddhism, it says that Buddhism talks about no self. That's a really dangerous notion. You, know, you get somebody who's got a really, really fragile sense of their self and then go up to them and say, well, don't worry about it, you've got no self. <laughs> you know, it, it could be completely destructive. Well, I was going to say something quite similar. Yeah. Actually, I, I agree with you very much because um, you know, we're talking about you know, the, the subtleties of, of self and what that really might mean. It is worth remembering that you know, quite a lot of people are struggling to develop a relatively stable sense of self yeah. which will allow them to you know, come together and to function. That's right. So, you know, we just, I think we probably need to remember that. Yeah. I think, I mean, the Buddha actually himself was very strong on this because he said it was far better, it was far better to teach a strong sense of self, which would translate in our terms as ego, it was far better to teach that than to get the wrong conception about not-self. Yeah, because in other words, if you got the wrong conception, i.e. the no-self idea, it was so destructive. Yeah, it was destructive because it's nihilistic. Yeah, it's nihilistic. There's nothing that we do or think or are that matters. And that's not what the Buddha is saying. That process matters. Just kind of as a side digression, this is part of I mean, the, reason, the reason why I'm stressing the idea of the process nature of the self is because the Buddha is not interested in ideas about really whether there is a self or there isn't a self. Because that's just, is there or isn't there? Yeah, he's not saying that. What he wants to do is understand how it functions. What he understands how this notion which we label self actually functions. Yeah, and how can it function healthily and how does it function unhealthily? Well, it functions unhealthily when it thinks it's one thing. That's the unhealthy functioning. The healthy functioning is when it starts to dissolve this idea of being one thing and open out into possibilities into different, because if I, if you think about this, if I think I am such and such a person, then it closes off all sorts of possibilities which actually might be open to me. You know, because I say to myself, I'm this type of person, I can't possibly do that. When you actually possibly could. Yeah. And what the Buddha is saying, actually that's the move from sometimes the lack of virtue in our behaviour to virtuous behaviour, because we have to let go of the idea that we are this type of person. And that's why I've been stressing all the way through, none of this stuff, or even the negative stuff I've been trying to stress to you about, you know, the unhappy functioning, the unhealthy functioning, is meant to make us feel really bad about the way we are. It's just about understanding our position, and then what we can do about it. That is all. You know, how we can move from unhealthy functioning to healthy functioning. But I will say more about that, because I'm sure it's a confusing notion to a lot of people. 
Sorry, you want to? Uh, yes, I have a question about the matter. When I see the aspect of uh, not I, not me, not mine, mm -hmm. uh, and I give matter to, how can I give matter to myself? That's one question. <laughs> But the, the bigger question is, why we are not spreading, spreading out immediately? not feeding the self giving matter mm -hmm. but spreading out and just you, you see not first not as yeah. a person Well, the answer to the latter part of your question, really, first, the reason why we start immediately with ourselves is because even if we're not understanding ourselves correctly, we need to come into some kind of self, relationship of self-respect and self-regard. It's good self-regard. <clears throat> because if we don't have it, and I think I've tried to say this in quite a number of different ways, if we don't have it, we find it very difficult to give to others. We find it very, very difficult to extend that you know, regard to others if we haven't got it for ourselves. I again, I often make a point about this in saying often when we brutalize ourselves, when we beat ourselves up and are very self-critical and don't like ourselves, then we do it to others very easily. You know, in fact, in English, we have this phrase, you know, I'm only telling you what I would tell about myself. Tell me about myself, which is me, I'm beating you up because I usually beat me up. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. So that's the reason why we start with ourselves, is to come into some kind of wholesome, positive regard about who we are, with all of our problems, with all of our unwholesomeness, just like when we extend with somebody else. We're not saying we've got to be perfect to... You know, to have kindness and good regard offered to them. But, you know, no matter who they are and what they are, then the way they deserve that positive regard, even if what they're doing is unwholesome a lot of the time. Now, as I say, if we can't do that to ourselves, and it's not founded in this relationship with ourselves, albeit now, perhaps if you understand it as a process rather than a thing, then we can't really begin to do it to others in any really meaningful way. I think you can kind of go through emotions, but in a really heartfelt sense, and I'm, that's really what I'm indicating, in a really heartfelt sense, it's extremely difficult to do. Extremely difficult to do.